0: of Christmas, isn't it? That God is with us. I just wanted to say I'm so glad to have all of you here and so many of you have joined us from out of town and some of you have joined us for the first time from in town. Um, So I just wanted to say uh, one more time, welcome to you. Uh, So glad to have you. We are in the fourth and final Sunday of Advent. Very simply put, Advent is the season in which we prepare Our hearts and our minds, our focus, everything that is in us to celebrate the birth of God, the birth of Jesus on this planet. And that's why Christmas is such a big deal. That's why we have a season that leads up to the celebration. It's not like the celebration can just happen in a day or in a morning, but literally we have a whole month, a whole season of Advent that prepares us for this worship. So this Sunday is the last Sunday in our series that we've been in, Refocus Christmas. And today is 2020 vision, perfect vision of Jesus, perfect vision of God, the right view of God. And so we're talking about that today. And uh, I want you to just take a moment with me and imagine that the president of the United States has decided to join us for worship this morning. He flew in on Air Force One, right? And he decided to come to Northridge. Isn't that cool? I mean, that's pretty sweet. And I want you to imagine that he is here with us. And I want you to think, would this room, if the President of the United States were here, sitting here, worshiping with us this morning, would this room be a little bit different? Would the feeling in this room be a little bit different? Sure it would, wouldn't it? Wouldn't you, wouldn't you be sitting up a little straighter? Wouldn't you be doing the sideways glance? What's he doing now? What's he doing now? He's still doing the same thing. I thought he was the president. Isn't he supposed to be like, you know, making a call or something? You know, and we'd be like, it, the awareness would be heightened, wouldn't it? It just, it, things would be different. We would have, and when you came to church this morning, you would have had to go through metal detectors. That would have been fun. Right? We'd have probably people in suits all around the perimeter, right? Checking. Maybe you saw them, maybe you didn't, but they'd be around making sure the entrances and exits are all covered with their little curly Q cord things hanging out of their ears, right? Secret Service everywhere. Things would be different, wouldn't they? Because of the presence of somebody so powerful, Right? Things would be different. When I was going into middle school, we were actually about, we literally had the moving van full of all of our stuff. We were moving from Rapid City, South Dakota, to Eau Claire, Wisconsin. And we were getting ready to move there. And this was right before I went into middle school. So we're talking a long time ago, okay? Okay. This is going back to ancient history, so I, I need to give some background. Okay, at that time, we, I had the opportunity to sing at the 50th anniversary, not a solo. Dear goodness, that would have been bad. Um, but in a choir, got to sing at the 50th anniversary celebration of Mount Rushmore in Rapid City, South Dakota. And the president of the United States was going to be there. At that time, it was George Bush Sr., like the first George Bush to be president, all right? And, and at that time, and so um, they had what they had done is they had cordoned off the mountains all the way around Mount Rushmore. They had, they had set up this perimeter. They'd shut down the highways. They'd shut down everything in that whole area. Literally, they'd shut it down. No traffic could get in and out of the entire Black Hills area around this massive mountain where Mount Rushmore is carved. And so the only way that I was able to get up there to, with the choir to sing is they put us on this coach bus that they had checked and rechecked for everything. You know, they looked this thing over and they got us on the bus. And then I rode the bus up into the mountains and then they dropped us off. And then when we dropped off, we had to go through a set of metal detectors. And then they took us kind of back. There's this huge amphitheater in front of of Mount Rushmore where we were going to sing. And they took a few of us backstage that were going to be kind of toward the front. And as we were standing there, I'm looking in the woods and I see people in suits everywhere. Literally just standing in the middle of the trees. And they're with fairly ominous weapons, you know, like ready to go and in suits. I'm like, that doesn't match up but anyway, It's cool. And I'm looking around. I'm just kind of going, wow, you know, metal textures, all this stuff. And then we're standing there and, and up drives this motorcade, right? A whole host of vehicles. They're all black, of course. This is what they do. And, and then there's this biggest stretch limo that I've ever seen. And out gets not the president. <laughs> I thought. I was like, oh, the president. Oh. You know, we're all like, hey, the president, let's get ready. You know, nope. Uh, I don't know how many Secret Service agents You know when you go to the circus and there's that clown car? <laughs> hey, it was kind of like that, except the limo was huge. But it still, I was like, I don't know how many people are in there. That's crazy. Secret Service just started pouring out like ants. You know, And then they disappeared. I don't know what they did, but I'm sure it was like, you know, perimeter scare or whatever they were doing. But they got out and they went and disappeared and they did their thing. And then a few minutes later, the real motorcade that was a decoy, I found out later. <laughs> Uh, The real motorcade showed up and the president got out and I got to shake his hand, say hi to him, you know, greet the president. That was really cool. By the way, I was like little, you know, I was going to middle school. The dude is huge. His (laughs) hand swallowed mine. I literally, it did. It was like, I thought I wasn't sure if I was going to get part of it back. You know, it was huge, but it was an awesome moment. The pomp and circumstance, the fanfare was huge. Security was at an all-time high. I mean, just the amount of stuff that had to happen to shut down a set of mountains in Rapid City, South Dakota, in the Black Hills, was incredible. I mean, the fanfare was... It couldn't have been bigger. By comparison, it's very interesting. The Christmas story is very different than that. Quite the opposite of that. Jesus the Savior of the world, the most powerful person in all of history is about to be born, but there's not pomp and circumstance. There's not fanfare. There's not massive applause. Jesus comes to earth as a tiny baby. I just kicked my water over. He comes to earth as a tiny baby. And why is this important? I think the beauty of Christmas is this. Jesus could have come in with lightning bolts and earthquakes and volcanoes going off. I would have added volcanoes. I'm sure God would have. But all this stuff, he could have done that. And we would have been, whoa, massive light. Look at that. He could have done that easily. But he didn't. He chose to come in as a tiny baby. He came in. As a baby, and what does a baby need? A baby needs everything. A baby needs to be fed, needs to be clothed, needs to be held, needs to be comforted, needs to be warm. Everything needs to be taken care of, a baby. And God said, I'm going to put my place in that. In other words, here's what's cool about this Jesus entered our world the same way we all enter our world. Isn't that cool? God entered our world the same way we all enter our world as a tiny baby. And I think this is the beauty of Christmas, and we're going to talk about this story for a minute. If you'd like to follow along, we're going to, we're going to put it up on the screen like we normally do in a minute. But uh, if you'd like to follow along, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. If you like to follow along on your phones, whatever, all that kind of stuff that sometimes what I do, I pull up my Bible app. You know, we have to have an app for the Bible now. You know, otherwise it it just doesn't work. And uh, just pull it up. Luke chapter 2, we're going to be in the first few verses there. These seven verses are going to change the course of history forever. These seven verses change everything forever. These seven verses are powerful. And we're going to take a look at these seven verses and unpack them just a little bit. So Luke chapter 2. Verses one through three to start at that time, the Roman emperor Augustus decreed that a census should be taken throughout the Roman Empire. This was the first census taken when Corinius was governor of Syria. All returned to their own ancestral towns to register for the census. OK, so we're going to stop there for a minute. Very simply, these three verses, you know what this is doing? All this is doing is setting up the historical context. It's kind of like setting the stage. You know when you tell a really funny story and you know this is the way to tell it because it's going to be set up perfectly this way? This story is set up so that we understand when Jesus was born, we understand the historical context that he was born into. It's important to know when in history this was. What was going on when Jesus was born? So this is just historical context. So let's go through this. There's this guy named Augustus, Caesar Augustus. The reason he's known as Caesar Augustus. And you can see we have, you know, pictures. They didn't have um, smartphones back then, so they had to carve things out of stone. It takes a little longer, but it got the job done. All right, so this is is Caesar Augustus. Also, if you look him up in history, his real name is actually Octavian. He's he's really uh, Octavian is who he really is. Caesar Augustus or Octavian, he rules what is now known as the Roman Empire. It has just become the Roman Empire. Before this, it was a republic. It was ruled by the Senate. It no longer is. This is after Julius Caesar. This is after him and his murder and all that kind of stuff. And so now Rome has officially transferred to become an empire ruled by one person, one man. Caesar Augustus, Octavian, is the guy that's in charge of the Roman Empire. Okay, Just to give us some idea of the Roman Empire, we have a map. If you look at this, the Roman Empire, this doesn't show quite all of it, but the Roman Empire literally controls the entire Mediterranean Sea. There is no coastline around the entire Mediterranean that is not controlled by the Romans at this point in history. In fact, this is not quite the furthest extent that the Roman Empire will get, but it's close. Okay, it's not quite to the first extent, but it's close. This is where Jesus is born into. But however, where is the seat of power? Where is everything centralized? Augustus, he lives in Rome, in Italy, right? This is where everything emanates from. This is where everything flows from as far as earthly, political wealth and power flows from Rome. You know where Jesus was born? There's a little purple dot way over there on the edge of the map. Jesus was born on the furthest, almost the furthest reaches of the Roman Empire, about as far away as you can get from the seat of power and wealth and still be in the Roman Empire. He was born as far away from the power and prestige and popularity that was emanating from Rome. Does that maybe tell us something? Possibly. Let's go on and see the next part of the story. So we know that this is what's happening. Verses 4 and 5. And because Joseph was a descendant of King David, he had to go to Bethlehem in Judea, David's ancient home. He traveled there from the village of Nazareth in Galilee. He took with him Mary, his fiancée, who was now obviously pregnant. So Jesus ends up being born in Bethlehem, not in Nazareth, because of this historical context. A census is being taken, and so they have to travel from the northern part of Israel to the southern part of Israel down to this little town called Bethlehem. Bethlehem is six miles outside of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the big city. Bethlehem is the little dot on the map. Bethlehem is not a destination. It's where you go through to get to Jerusalem. And this is where Jesus is born, not only is he on the edge of the Roman Empire, not only is he on the edge of the most powerful place in the world, but he is also close to Jerusalem. And no, he's not born in Jerusalem, the most powerful city in that area. No, he's born in little Bethlehem. Where people would say, uh, where, where is that? Can you point that out to me? I don't, I, I've heard of Bethlehem, right? And that's where Jesus is born. He's born in little Bethlehem. Amazing. And then verses 6 and 7, the last one. And while they were there in Bethlehem, the time came for her baby to be born. She gave birth to her first child, the son. She wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no lodging available for them. So this is very interesting. The God of the universe. The most powerful Person in all the universe is now born as a tiny little infant, as a baby. And where is he placed? He was not born into a castle. He was not born into the temple. He was not born into a palace. He was not set in the royal throne room with, you know, glitz and glitter and glam and the right color bumper and curtains. I've been through that. He wasn't born into that stuff. He was born in a little guest area next to where the animals stay. And the only place they had to put Jesus was in a manger. You know what a manger is? A manger is a feeding trough for animals. That's what it is. Okay? Now understand: the manger would have been very sturdy, would have been safe, would have been warm. Especially being wrapped in strips of cloth. By the way, that's a Middle Eastern culture thing. They still do that. He was wrapped in strips of cloth. He was warm. He was comfortable. He was safe. But nobody can argue that it was glamorous. (laughs) I have heard of, well, I've heard of nobody. No mothers-to-be that have said, you know, I'm just so excited. I need to tell you about it. I just picked out the perfect manger. I did. I was online shopping, and I found one. You should see the woodwork in that feeding trough. It is awesome. And it's going to match our curtains in the nursery. What's more, (laughs) I've never heard of anybody say that. Why? Because it's not glamorous. It's not cute. And yet Jesus, once again, with every part of the Christmas story, I think is perhaps making a statement To us, is it perhaps true that the beauty of Christmas is that God turns everything on its head? Is it true that Christmas, the beauty of Christmas, why we are so drawn to the story of Christmas and God being born as a baby is that God turns everything on its head, everything, with the birth of this baby? Because we tend to, here's what we tend to do. Tell me if this is not true. We tend to elevate the politically powerful, right? We tend to elevate the most loud person in the room. We kind of we focus on that person. The wealthiest, the, the most powerful, the most flamboyant, right? The most popular, whatever. You stick that word in there, whatever it is, and we tend to elevate those people. And perhaps God is saying, you know, They may get some credit, but real power maybe isn't found there. Maybe the beauty of Christmas is that God decided to come as a very normal baby. So he says, listen, I understand. I'm with you. I'm here. I think that that's part of the beauty of Christmas and why maybe we love it so much. And so I have two points today, just two very simple points that I want to talk through today. The first one is this, and this is all about turning everything on its head. True power comes from pure purpose. True power comes from pure purpose. In other words, if we flip that, true power does not come from political position. We would tend to act otherwise, but it doesn't. True power does not come from immense wealth. Although sometimes we act otherwise. True power does not come from popularity. Although we tend to act otherwise sometimes. Especially when we go through high school and a little bit of college. Popularity seems to be kind of the thing we shoot for, isn't it? I went through it, I remember True power is not found in those things. True power is not found in being able to throw five touchdowns on a Sunday afternoon. Ooh, there it is. It will increase your fan base, though. And it might get you to the Super Bowl. By the way, I'll be cheering for that later on today. And I understand that, so it's good. It's not a bad thing. Just saying true power does not reside there. True power, true genuine power does not reside in those things. God's entire purpose for coming to earth as a tiny baby was a pure purpose. What was that pure purpose? It was to give us a really, really good thing. One word, hope. How many of you want hope? How many of you hope for things? How many of you, if you have children, you hope for wonderful things for them? How many of you go into life and you say, I hope that this turns out this way? I hope my life turns out this way. I hope this ends up this way at the end of my life. How many of us have hope? I would think all of us have certain types of hope. God came as a tiny baby with the pure intention, the pure purpose of giving us incredible hope, hope that someday we could spend eternity with God. And it all had to happen like this. True power comes from pure purpose. If you think about it, those things that we tend to put stock in, material things or power or wealth or money, whatever, you plug it in. All of us, it's going to be a little bit different because we're all bent a little bit different ways. But all of those things, we know those things don't give true happiness and joy. How do we know? Because we know when we get those things that we just thirst for more of those things, don't we? I know this is true. As soon as I got my iPhone 5, I wanted an iPhone 6. Why? Because it's better than the iPhone 5, obviously. As soon as we get the TV that's this size, I want this size. You know, when it was flat, like, okay, the flat screen, that's awesome. And then it's the LCD, and now it's the LED, and now it's... I don't know what it is. Whatever the next one is, it's out there. I don't know what it is, but it's, it's grand. It's awesome. I need to have it. Right, And we put stock in these things, and then when we get it, it just makes us more thirsty, doesn't it? Doesn't it make you more thirsty for something else, for something bigger, something better? And God says, is perhaps this truth maybe maybe what we're dealing with? Is it possible, I'm just posing the question, is it possible that we have an unclear view of Jesus and of life as a result? Let me ask it a different way. Is it possible that we have, instead of seeing Jesus in his image, in God's image, is it possible that we have created Jesus in our image? Is that possible? Have we created Jesus in our American image? Do we think that Jesus is a middle class American citizen or at the very minimum that he thinks that's great? Do we think that Jesus do have we created God in our image? Have we put on that filter and we said, yep, God would want me to to be successful and do this and be awesome. Yes, he does. But he also wanted to be part of the equation. Right. It's not that he doesn't want you to be successful. Absolutely not. He wants you to be. It's not that he doesn't want these amazing things for you. He does. In fact, he longs for that for you. But he also says the only way to achieve the true, true power of that is to have God as a part of the equation. Have Jesus as part of the equation. Is it possible that the Christmas story shows us that true change, true salvation in our life can happen in the normal everyday life? That it doesn't have to be seated in Rome? That it doesn't have to be, Augustus didn't have to be a part of it. He wasn't. He wasn't a part of it at all. Except that he, oh, there's this census thing that's going on. And then it's going to help Jesus be born in Bethlehem, which is exactly where he was supposed to be born. But he had no part in the planning. God, I think, is saying with this story that political power, wealth, grand things that we tend to put all of our stakes in, maybe those things will actually hinder us from pure purpose in our life instead of help us. When Jesus was alive and and doing his ministry on earth, we get a lot of information about his ministry time on earth. What we know is he never had great wealth. He never was voted into political office. Um, In fact, it's very interesting. If you look at the New Testament, if you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, if you just start reading those, read about Jesus. And when he started to really get popular, when people started to come come to hear him by the thousands, you know what he did? (laughs) This is very curious. Jesus would start saying things. Jesus would start doing things that would start to sift people out. And they'd go, oh, uh, I, I don't know if I'm cool with that. And they'd start flittering away. And then he'd be left with a few true blue faithful followers of him. Everybody else had fallen away. And then he was left with the real deal in front of him. He was not into popularity. He was not into wealth. He was not into status. Here's what Jesus came to do. If nothing else, hear that this is why Jesus came to earth. Jesus came not for any of that stuff. He came to conquer and defeat evil and sin in the lives and the hearts of every person on earth. Past, present when he lived and future. Jesus came to defeat evil and sin in everyone's lives, in everyone's hearts. That's what his purpose was. That's what he came to do. So true power comes from pure purpose. Second point, and we're going to end with this one. God is with us. This may not seem mind-blowing, This may not seem powerful, but it is. This is perhaps the most powerful thing about God. God is with us. There's another part of the Christmas story that we didn't read today. We actually read it. If you were here a couple of weeks ago, we read it. We talked about this part of the Christmas story, but it's in Matthew chapter 1. Jesus is given another name, another title. You know what that is? Emmanuel. How many of you heard of Emmanuel? Emmanuel. There's a a lot of songs that sing about Emmanuel. Uh, If you see it, there's a couple of ways to write it. Emmanuel, if you translate it from the Greek, it ends up with E. If you translate it directly from Hebrew, it ends up with an I. The English language is weird. That's all that there is to that. Emmanuel, it's the same thing, though. These two words, if you see these two words, this is the same thing. They're both describing Jesus, Jesus himself. They're describing who he is. Okay? when this was originally written, I just this is just for your interest. This is what it originally looked like in Hebrew. Okay? how many of you like to read that out of your Bible every morning? All right. That, that make it a little more difficult. Right. If you think it's hard to read now, just imagine. I mean, you know, and by the way, it's not read like, you know, left to right and all this stuff. It's different than that, too. I mean, it changes everything. But this is how it was originally written. This is Emmanuel. when you translate this, It literally means God is with us. And I want to talk about that for just a minute. Worship band, you guys can go ahead and come on up. Emmanuel, if you translate this original Hebrew, literally it comes out to God is with us. Okay, I want you to think about this. If you go out to public with somebody... Okay, if you end up in public with somebody, is there a difference between somebody that just happens to be in the restaurant or in the room with you and somebody that came with you? Is there a difference in that, that type of person? Of course there is. I mean, if I walk into a public place and the person that I'm walking in with, they say, he's with me. Brent is with me. What is he saying? What, is that? what does that mean? It means I am with him. He is with me. We are friends. I am known. We're not strangers. We are connected We are in relationship of some kind. He knows me. I'm with him. And he is with me. Isn't that different? Okay, the reason this is important is because this is so different than God is above us. God is over us. God is beyond us. Right? God is with us is very different. Very powerful. Perhaps The greatest thing about Christmas is that although God is above us and although God is way bigger than us. And yes, there's no way we can even fathom God. There's just no way. It's not going to happen. A lot of people don't like when I say that. Sometimes people get offended. I'm like, it's God. You're just it's not going to happen. I'm sorry. God is huge. He's bigger than we can even imagine. His love is greater than we can even come up with or put into words. And yet, God himself chose to be God with us. Why is this important? This is really important because what if God with us could change everything? What if God being with us could change how we act? Could change what we do? Could change how we talk? Would change how we treat other people? Including at work. What if it changes who you are? Not who God made you to be. Who you really are. What if God with us could change us? Let me just tell you, God is with us. And it can change us. And it can do all those things. Think about it. God is with us right now.